Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb-Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Christopher Poulos, who is an attorney and the executive director of the Washington Statewide Reentry Council. Prior to his appointment, he served as the executive director of Life of Purpose Treatment at the University of North Texas, where he was also an adjunct professor of criminal justice. During law school, he served at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy and the Sentencing Project. Poulos has advised United States Senator Angus King, independent in Maine, on addiction and justice policy and served on several task forces related to criminal justice policy. He graduated cum laude, from the University of Maine School of Law, where he was president of the American Constitution Society and represented children facing criminal charges as a student attorney in the juvenile justice clinic. Prior to law school, Poulos overcame many obstacles, including tragic family losses, addiction, homelessness, and federal incarceration. He now dedicates his life to helping others overcome or avoid similar challenges, and he supports a public health-based approach to addiction. His work promotes equal access to the law and seeks to end mass incarceration and the collateral consequences now facing the tens of millions of people with criminal convictions. Chris's story is absolutely amazing. It brought about a lot of good topics, and we are so excited to have him share and take time out of his busy schedule to come and talk with us. So please enjoy Christopher Poulos. All right, episode 12, let's do this. Chris, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the program. I you know, want to jump right in and, and get into your story. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Poulos. I'm 36 years old now. And interestingly enough, today actually marks 12 years since I've drank alcohol or used a drug that I wasn't prescribed. Wow. Congratulations. So today, is, would you call your today your sobriety date? Kind of. Kind of. Okay. Tell us more. The reason I say kind of is because today's the day I really began my recovery process. For me, it was not a single event. So on May 12th or 13th, I think it was the 13th was the first day I woke up and actually didn't drink alcohol or take any drugs. I was not prescribed and I was still on different prescription medications namely Adderall. And I found myself unable to take that medication as prescribed. And so what I I choose to do is for me, I, I actually celebrate my anniversary of sobriety from the time when I stopped taking that medication as well. But May 13th of 2007 was the day I stopped drinking alcohol, using opiates, snorting cocaine every day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera which was in and of itself, even with the Adderall, a huge, huge, huge change and milestone in my life. Absolutely. So what was the date? What's the sobriety date that you celebrate the anniversary? I go with January 1st, um, 2009. And the reason I do that, I was in prison in 2008, 2009, 2010. And I remember in the fall, sometime in the fall of 2009, I couldn't sleep and somebody gave me a uh, some kind of prescription sleep aid that wasn't mine. And that was only like a month or two after I stopped the Adderall anyway. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go with January 1st, 2009, because I'm sure that the last time I took any pill I wasn't prescribed or anything was um, in, you know, toward the end of 2008. So what happened? I actually smoked my last cigarette on new year's eve of 2009 too so there's it's easy for me to remember that i started smoking cigarettes when i was literally a little kid and uh had my last rolled cigarette with a guy 
whose nickname was Carney because he worked in the carnival. And he and I snuck outside of the prison unit and smoked one last hand-rolled cigarette together to, to ring in the new year in prison. And since then, I haven't, haven't had a cigarette and I haven't had a, a, any kind of drug that I haven't been prescribed with the exception of caffeine and sugar. Yeah, well, well congratulations on 12 years. It's, it's huge, absolutely huge. How can you tell us, you know, we, we, now we've gotten a glimpse into kind of where you came from. Can you give us a little bit of background? How did you, how did you get to prison? How did things spiral out of control? Did you start off, you know, snorting coke every day? No, I didn't. And although some people, you know, their substance use accelerates really, really quickly. And actually mine did too, but it wasn't, it wasn't cocaine when I was still, uh, you know, a preteen and a teen. So when I was uh, um, about 13 or 14 years old, it actually started with prescription pills. So I was prescribed Ritalin and then later uh, Adderall, as I already mentioned. And my friends and I would crush up and snort Ritalin and Adderall, smoke pot, drink alcohol. Eventually, not that long after, got into uh, different pills, including opiates. And what I found was that as soon as I had a substance in my system, whatever that was, it immediately provided me with relief from any kind of feelings of inadequacy, discomfort, anything like that, social awkwardness, all of that just melted away as soon as I got the substance in my system. And I I think that that's actually pretty natural. So if somebody goes to a bar, right, and they're feeling socially awkward, or they're just like, I don't even know these people or a cocktail party, as soon as someone gets a couple drinks in them, that's it's just a natural social lubricant. The issue for me is that I I used it to an took that to an extreme and didn't know how to turn it off at any point. And I also used it to treat unresolved trauma. So what were you prescribed the Ritalin for and what was, what was the, what was your childhood like? Um, so the, the Ritalin and first Ritalin later Adderall, it was for ADHD. I had trouble focusing. I still have an incredibly difficult time focusing. I've learned uh, some different ways, non-medication ways to cope with it. My childhood was similar, I guess, in a lot of ways to a lot of people. I um, you know, had some advantages. My grandfather was actually my mom's stepdad was an attorney and he, you know, kind of took me under his wing on one hand. And then on the other hand, I didn't, didn't know my own father. So my, my mom was a single mom growing up. My birth dad still, to my knowledge, suffers from a severe untreated mental illness and substance use disorder. And we've never been able to develop any kind of healthy relationship. So did you understand that that was what the issue was as a kid? Or did you just think that he didn't want to be around? I didn't really understand it. I did meet him. I met him for the first time when I was 10. And it was, we we tried to have a relationship. But what I found, and this is going like way into recovery, is I didn't realize this at the time, but he would constantly try to rehash with me as a 10 or 11-year-old stuff that happened between his uh, and my mom and him, you know, many years ago, and to the, the to the very last email I got from him when I was in prison, it was the same thing. He was just completely a prisoner of his own resentments, regrets, anger, and uh, this is again jumping way forward. But something I've learned in recovery is that if I find myself trying to hold on to a relationship or hold on to an outcome that in in anything that wasn't intended to me, I stop and I think like, wait, that's exactly what my father is still trapped in. And I have the, the ability to leave that, to break that. And the substance use is, you know, as we say in certain fellowships, it's merely a symptom. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. He, I don't, we never were able to develop a healthy 
relationship. And uh, the bottom line for me is really as soon as I found drugs or alcohol, everything else, every, every, you know, pain, challenge, awkwardness, it all melted away. And then um, what compounded it substantially was when I was a high school senior, I was working as a commercial fisherman off the coast of Maine with my stepdad, who's my little brother's dad, and his boat went missing at sea. And while the boat was missing at sea, I found out that one of my best friends got into a fist fight at a party. He got the better of the other kid, the other teenager, and the other kid lured him away from the party under the um, saying, let's go smoke a joint, put this behind us. And he lured my friend away and they were both drunk, you know, 19, 20, maybe 21 year olds. And no one knew that the other young man had brought a kitchen knife from this house party with him and uh, took my friend's life. And uh, shortly after that, they found my stepdad's body, my little brother's dad's body floating in the Atlantic Ocean. We, We think a tanker struck his boat down and didn't report it. And that was about two or three months after I held my grandfather in in my arms as he died after a long battle with cancer. And he was really, my stepdad and my grandfather were my my father figures in place of my own dad. So the reason I bring that up is because once all those things happened, my substance use immediately went from, I mean, it was already awful. And then after that, it became completely unmanageable. My mom didn't know much about addiction. I didn't know much about addiction. I thought I was simply bad. I was a criminal. I was a loser. I was a scumbag. I was an addict. That's how I identified myself. And yeah, like in a proud way? No, no, no. no? In, a, in a way filled with shame, actually. Yeah. But it's how who I thought I was. I didn't right. realize, I didn't. I didn't have any idea that I had a condition that was treatable. I thought I was flawed. I was just inherently flawed. And if something's inherently flawed, then how can it be fixed? So until I realized years later that I had a condition known as substance use disorder, and it was my responsibility to seek help um, and then accept help, then I was. Uh, it just progressed and progressed and progressed through homelessness, jail, institutions, and ultimately federal prison. How did you get from, can you take us from the point where these three really important men in your life pass to where you get to federal prison? What was the, you know, road there like? Yeah. So when I was 18, I, um, it, it, this, all this happened and my mom didn't know how to deal with addiction really. And we didn't have um, either we didn't have the resources or even the knowledge. I mean, what would have been best was for, would have been for me to get, like, whether I liked it or not, to get sent to treatment at that age. I was still a high school student. I was any day I could have died, given the um, decisions I was making and the level of my sickness. And so I, I would have, if I had been whisked away to treatment or even connected with somebody who was in recovery, um, maybe that would have helped. That 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 never happened for me. So I found myself um, homeless as a teenager, and uh, in Portland, Maine. And one story I'll share with that, and this this relates to the shame and the stigma and discrimination surrounding addiction and and even homelessness, especially as a teenager, is that I used to go to the local emergency room and I would sit in the waiting room. And uh, just trying to stay warm because it's Maine in the middle of the winter and I have no place to go. And what would happen is the nurse or nurses and often with a security guard next to them would eventually come up to me and tap me and wake me up if I was asleep or just start talking to me and say, you know, what what are you doing? Can we can we help you with something? And I would say, oh, I'm just just waiting for my mom just waiting for my mom. And they would leave and then come back an hour later or so and say, yeah, what's, what's your mom's name? What, do you know what room she's in? Let's, can we, we help you find her? 
And uh, I would say, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. And I'd go, this is back when we had pay phones everywhere. And I'd go to the pay phone. I'd pretend to dial my mom's number. I wasn't really dialing anybody. And then I'd pretend to have a conversation like this. I'd say, oh, mom, hello, really loud so they could hear. And say, mom, oh, you're at the other hospital, mom? I can't believe, oh, I thought you were at this hospital. Okay, I'll be right over. And then I would make sure the nurses and the security guards see me. And I'd say, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm at the wrong hospital. Okay, I'm going to leave now. Thank you. And uh, it was because I was too ashamed and scared to just say, hey, I'm, I'm a high school student. I'm 18 on the dot. So I'm technically a, an adult, but I'm still a senior in high school. And I don't have anywhere to sleep. I'm, I, I'm really sick. What, what, can you help me? I couldn't, couldn't say that. And so what I did was I uh, thank God for my, my grandmother. She, she took me in. And then my mom would take me in, too, um, from time to time. But I never addressed the underlying issues. And, you know, I sold pot as a teenager. And in my early 20s, I discovered cocaine. And I uh, also discovered very quickly that it's incredibly expensive. And so there was no way I could sustain a cocaine addiction without any, you know, unless you're a stock executive or something like that. I don't know how you could. And locked it up to something. And so I started selling small amounts of cocaine to support my own habit. And within just months, not years, that grew to the... Uh, level and through the people I was connected with more than me, uh, myself, the federal government took an interest in our activities. Took an interest. I like it. Yeah. And um, that's how that began. And uh, then in 2007, May 12, 2007, I actually got to a point in some, there were some external things happening. Like we, we knew that the government was watching us and there could be serious charges. Of course, I had, that was, that had become normal, like court, court arrests, handcuffs, they had become routine. And I've, I've learned now that it's not like, like normal, I shouldn't say <laughs> normal people. I should say people that don't have from, a problem that don't have a problem aren't like, oh, I've got court Tuesday. I'd love to join you, but I've got court again. <laughs> no, it's like, it's, you say, like, no, I've got a haircut on Tuesday. Right, I right. Too. Let's do it at three. Right. We would say that for a quarter, like, oh, no, I got to go turn myself in for yeah, a I'll couple see in days. a week. Yeah. Yeah. And that became routine, which is so, so unnatural for humans to have court and incarceration become routine. And anyhow, I got to a point where when I was 24, the substances could no longer provide the relief. So even when I was, uh, and the, really there was a one pivotal moment, I um, accidentally discharged a firearm in my apartment while I was intoxicated. Thank God no one, no one was hurt. You know, it was it was a could have been a terrible situation. I could have killed um, a neighbor or something like that. And about a week after that happened, the the neighbors and the police connected the dots that it was a gunshot that had gone through my ceiling, and they uh, were searching my house. It was actually Easter, I think, but it was sometime in the spring of yeah, it was Easter. Easter Sunday in the spring of 2007. And I showed up in my house and they told me at my apartment, they said I couldn't go in. And I didn't know what to do except do what I knew how, what to do. I called one lawyer. He didn't answer. So I gave up and I went down to the local bar and started drinking rum. And I drank glass after glass of rum with just the tiniest hint of soda on top. And I probably had eight pint glasses of rum, which normally I would be, even with the tolerance I had, you're going to be drunk after that much alcohol. And I didn't feel a thing. I didn't feel a thing. I just, so there's, I think 
some people can, anybody, it doesn't matter if you have a substance use disorder, recovery, whatever. Anytime we do something really bad that we feel really bad about as humans, particularly if we get caught, we get that terrible knot in our stomachs, right? That's just a natural human thing. And my way of relief from that was not like rectifying the situation or anything or like making amends or it was simply pouring drugs and alcohol down my throat or up my nose or into my veins. And that day it didn't work. And that's when everything, that's when everything began to shift for me. That must've been Easter's in April, right? So yeah. And and then I, I tried it for a couple more weeks, tried to get high, tried to get drunk and nothing major came of, I had a couple more misdemeanor charges out of the gun going off, but nothing major came of it. But that was the point where I realized I needed to either die or seek help, professional help. And I, uh, went to my my doctor, a psychiatrist, who normally I would go in and just give this normal song and dance for all the different pills I was prescribed. I was on just like a smorgasbord of, of psychotropic meds at that point, plus heroin, plus cocaine, plus alcohol every single day. And I would normally get, you know, manage to get myself together enough just to be like, yeah, yeah, things are going well. Just taking another semester off college and <laughs> please, please refill my prescription. Right. And I had a moment of willingness and I just told the doctor most of the truth. For the first time in my life, I said, I'm addicted to opiates. I'm addicted to cocaine, alcohol, and I don't, I don't think I can stop. And he said, and this is a, this is another thing about the just you know pride, I guess, and shame. He said, "When's the last time you used uh, alcohol or drugs?" And for some reason, I said to him, "I said, I looked all proud. I said it's been two weeks, and uh, perked up, and I was so proud of that." And he said, "Okay, so that means you don't need detox or, or inpatient. We can just start you in intensive outpatient." And I realized because. I was probably still high, or at least I shouldn't say high because I was no longer feeling the effects, but I had probably used substances that very day. And, you know, I could have right then just been like, doctor, you know what? I wanted to hold on to some shred of pride. I actually think detox would be a good idea. And I actually have been, he would have just been like, okay, fine, good. Thank you. But to me, I could not admit that. And so what happened was he did not order detox. He did not send me to to inpatient. And my mom, God bless her, same mom that kicked me out when I was 18 years old. I'm now 24. She welcomed me home and we put a mattress on the floor of uh, empty bedroom in the family home. And for about three days straight, I uh, went through the process of having alcohol benzos, opiates, and cocaine all leave my system simultaneously. Incredibly dangerous. And it was awful. I was hallucinating. I won't share all the physical effects. If people are interested, they can Google it. But I do remember something that's not that gross, but it just every every few hours I remember having to change the sheets just because they were drenched with sweat. And then flip the mattress over and remake the bed. Um, and I remember hallucinating. And I can say that through through treatment, through a 12-step program, and through God's grace, I have not had to have that experience again since then. And that began my journey. So that's how it all started in, in recovery was May 2007. If my math's right, that's 12 years, right? Yep. That's right. That's right. That's right. So did you go, so then did you go to prison sober or did you go to prison after that point in time, like wanting to be in recovery? I did. So what happened was the the beauty of the federal government is that they often do long-term multiple year investigations. um, Whereas often in the state, usually or local county, it's like you get pulled over, right? They find some drugs, you're going to jail that day. It's, it doesn't really work that way with an FBI and DEA 
investigation. And that's what I was um, subject to. So what ended up with, I didn't fully know about, I don't know, eight months, maybe 10 months, a few months into my sobriety, I had gotten a job. Um, Again, I was still struggling with the Adderall. But to me, that's like someone having um, an O'Doul's rather than mainlining heroin is like pretty good progress. That's definitely Um, amazing progress. And so I, I got a job. I was in the process of getting back into college and I was living at my mom's. She took me back in now that I was healthy. And I got a private phone call and the guy said, uh, God, I don't even remember his name now, but the person said, oh, we'll just say Mike because I can't remember the guy's name right okay. now. So I get a private phone call and I'm always antsy about answering. I mean, even to this day, it's like, what are they selling? Is it somebody selling <laughs> something? Who right. is something I want to talk to? And so the guy goes, it's Matt. That was his name. He goes, hey, man, it's me, Matt. And I said, Matt, who? Who is this? He goes, Chris, come on, man. It's Matt. What's going on? How are you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. And I said, look, you know, I was feeling a little anxious. Like, Who is this guy? I said, tell me who this is or I'm hanging up the phone. And he goes, Mr. Poulos, this is Special Agent Matt Walbridge, FBI, Boston. Why don't you take a look outside your window and then come on out just like that? And I'm at my mom's house. My little brother's playing with his friend. At this point, they're hiding. Uh, My mom is home downstairs and I open the shades and the home is surrounded by federal agents. And uh, And this is eight months into your sobriety, your recovery. They knew it, too. They, They were still watching. They knew that I had made some positive changes and they brought me straight to the it's really interesting. The federal government, they don't bring you to jail first. You go right to court like you're eating your oatmeal. And the next thing you know, you're in front of a federal judge. And they're reading off the indictment to you. And I was indicted on five federal uh, charges for cocaine trafficking, cocaine distribution, and uh, possession of a firearm. So, wow. So then you go to federal prison. Where, where, where did you go? Where, where, what prison did you go to? What state were you in? Maine? I started in Maine. And I think a really important story that relates to why I do the work that I do now is what yeah, happened when I, when I first got arrested. So what happened when I first got arrested, I'm facing five federal felony charges and I didn't have any money. I mean, I wasn't a big drug dealer by any uh, stretch. Um, I wasn't nickel and dime, like tiny, tiny, get two bags, use one, sell one. I was somewhere in the middle, but it was not any kind of a glamorous wealthy lifestyle. So I had zero, zero money to hire an attorney. And um, I got a court appointed attorney. And this is not to criticize all court appointed attorneys. I I know a lot of them and they do amazing work, many of them. And you're an attorney Um, now. I am an attorney now. Yeah. And but my experience with my my court appointed attorney was just awful. So I got awful about it. I got on the phone with him right after I'd been arrested. And I and do you, do you know the first thing someone asks if they've just gotten arrested or just gotten to jail? What's the first thing they're interested in? Their phone call? Okay, but I'm already on the phone. Okay. What's the first thing they, they want? Bail? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people get that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not like you're not thinking about trial. You're not thinking yeah. about... Phone call, then bail. You might not even be thinking about what the charges yeah. are. You're saying, how the hell do I get out of this place? Mm-hmm. Bail. Exactly. You win. And so that's what I was thinking. And I said to him, you know, how can we, can we get me out of here? And he said, actually, this is a federal drug and gun trafficking case. The chances of you getting bail are slim to none. And he said, you know, it's the federal government probably wouldn't even have arrested you unless they had a strong case. So you might as well, you know, you might as well get the clock ticking on your sentence now. And I think he said something along those lines. And he made me feel hopeless, completely hopeless. And I realized that he was not willing. And, you know, everything he said was probably accurate from his position and from his level of influence. That's probably accurate, everything he told me. 
But what he wasn't willing to do, he wasn't even willing to put up a fight. He wasn't willing to vigorously represent me as a client. It was just like he felt like one more cog in the machine towards incarceration. And, you know, it's like like the prosecutor says nine years. He says three years and they shake hands and say six. Okay, next. Like, yeah, that's our justice system. A hundred percent. The legal system. I, I stopped calling it justice system for the time being. I think we aspire to have a justice system. After that phone call, I was, I thought, I, I don't have a lawyer. I do not have an attorney. I need to get one. And so I called family, I called friends, and I was able to retain private counsel. And I don't even know what they had for dinner in jail that night, because within hours I was released. As soon as I was able to pay uh, tens of thousands of dollars to hire private counsel, he called up the um, U.S. attorney, the prosecutor. He said, look, this guy is in recovery from addiction already. We can verify that he's been in outpatient treatment. He's got very strong ties to the community. He's got a job right now in the community. He's not a flight risk because he doesn't have any assets, any money. It's a nonviolent first-time offense that he's accused of. Why not let him out, let him keep saving up money, keep working on his recovery, and then if he has to go to prison, he will. And immediately the U.S. attorney said, sure, fine, we don't even need a hearing. And so when I left jail that day, and I wouldn't have even noticed this had I not already had some recovery under my belt, I normally would have just gone out and been right back into whatever I was doing probably within minutes. And this time I looked back at all the um, other folks that I was locked up in the county jail with and thought, I did just as bad, if not worse, than they did. You know, mostly brown, black, and lower income white people in there. And I I felt terribly guilty that I was going home purely because of the privilege, the economic privilege that I happened to have on that day. And it was that moment that I vowed to become an attorney when I left jail. And I ended up going to prison. I went to prison in first county jail in Maine, New Hampshire, federal prison in Brooklyn, New York for a while, Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, and finally the Lewisburg Federal Prison Camp, which is where I did most of my time. And you know, I had to do almost three years. Uh, which would have been 10 if I didn't have the attorney that I did. I'd you know just now be getting back on my feet after prison. Imagine that. What a waste, right? I mean, everything I've done over the last seven years would have been, wouldn't none of it would have happened. I would have just been warehoused. And I still did almost three years, two and a half, between two and a half and three years. And during that time, I had to decide, am I going to say screw it and revert back to my old lifestyle or am I going to stick with it? And thank goodness for, uh, you know, working a 12-step program before actually going to prison yeah. because wow. I, I was attracted for the first time in my life to people who were doing positive things in the prison. So in any peer group, right, it could be coworkers, it could be jail, it could be Yale, there's going to be people doing positive things and people doing negative things. And sometimes people go in between those two groups. And I was attracted to a group of guys, some older white guys, mostly older black guys, who had spent their time in prison, often decades, um, learning how to take care of their, their mind, their bodies, and their souls like they are temples. And that was something I had never been exposed to or at least not interested in before. And so I started to really, really transform. One thing I can give jail and prison for credit is they got me off the Adderall, finally, because I was I was still holding on to that Adderall. I could not tie my shoes without Adderall, or I couldn't read one a one-page, you know, one page in like a James Patterson novel without Adderall. But I, I was sitting in a jail cell and I thought, if not now, then when? Right? Like if I'm not going to finally get off amphetamines entirely, then when? I've been on this stuff since I was 12. And so I, I, tr- I, I tried it. I tried it. And, 
you know, eventually I could read a couple sentences, right? And then eventually I could read a page. Then I could read a James Patterson novel in a, in a few days. And, you know, eventually I could go to college, law school, and pass the bar exam without Adderall. So it was a process that took a decade. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. Yeah, and you, uh, you went to law school with a, a friend of mine who I absolutely adore and who speaks so highly of you. Shout out to, to Joe. And he's, he's just wonderful. And he said to me, oh, Ashley, you have to know this you have to know this guy, Chris, and um, I'm super grateful for that. So you you went to law school. How did you uh, how did you explain to law school what it, what was the process like? You know, and I, the reason I ask this, I have a lot of friends who have records and get their life together, and then they want to become nurses, doctors, lawyers. They want to you know, be a professional and, and, and they must seek licensure from, from a professional board. And so often I've been, I've seen people say, I can't get a real estate license. I can't get a a nursing license because I have a felony. And I, one of my best friends, she went through a really intense dental hygiene program with no guarantee they would not guarantee, despite being sober for over 15 years, being married to a district attorney, they would not guarantee that they would give her a license even if she passed the boards and paid for school and did all this. And um, she did eventually get it. But I, I would love for you to speak to that because I know that in recovery, people do struggle with this. Yeah. So first, um, I was fortunate to be able to, I had taken some college classes before I was arrested. So I was already admitted to the University of Southern Maine. So I didn't have to I didn't have to go through any kind of character or, you know, disclose any record with them. So that was the first step was just undergrad because they often ask about that stuff. Yeah. And you were already in, so it wasn't a... I was already in. I just said, yeah, I'm resuming my, my studies. Right. I right. You know, I didn't have to bring it up. I found that, you know, sometimes full disclosure is necessary, like you have to, right? And other times, if it doesn't ask, there's we don't have any obligation as people in recovery to go into like our deepest, darkest history or our health issues, which I can consider a substance use disorder to be a a health condition that's treatable. And so thankfully, I got into college. And while I was there, I was um, interning with the undergraduate student legal services office for an awesome attorney named Susan Hopkins, who I'm still close with this to this day. And next to Susan's office was the office of a man named uh, Reza Jalali, who's um, from Iran. And I didn't know at the time, but he was a political prisoner. He's done time as a political prisoner in Iran. And he fled to escape the regime and stayed in Europe for a long time or or some time. And then finally, he landed in Maine of all places. (laughs) And so I don't for some reason, I just I knew my mom knew him because my mom did some um, a lot of advocacy work around uh, refugees. And uh, Portland, Maine is a refugee resettlement center. So actually, that's probably why Reza ended up there um, in my hometown. And you wouldn't believe it, but just Portland High School has over 100 different languages that are spoken um, in the school, you know, school in Maine. Wow. No, I didn't know that. So I felt drawn to Reza, like magnetically drawn to Reza. And his office was right next to mine. And one day I asked him if I could talk with him. And he said, sure. And the doors opened. And I said, can we shut the door? And he's like, yeah, okay. And he's like shutting the door, like kind of trying to like close the shades. 
And then I I whispered to him like I used to have I used to have a problem with it with drugs. I had, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol. And uh, and then he's like, okay. And I said, and I've actually been arrested and I've gone to jail and I've been to prison. And he's like, okay. And he said, and I said, now I want to go to law school. I'm in recovery and I want to go to law school. Mm. And I was still whispering. Yeah. And he said, that's, that's wonderful. I'm friends with the Dean of the law school. I'm colleagues with the Dean, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and so I was just like, so this was a point where I was still trapped in the shame. And I thought that if you weren't in a 12 step meeting that you couldn't talk to anyone or anything about addiction, recovery, you have to just keep it private. And I had actually had some people tell me too, like, don't talk about the fact that you've been in prison unless you absolutely have to. You're going to, you're going to screw your career over. Um, Because mine wasn't highly publicized. You know what I mean? I wasn't on the front of a bunch of newspapers and stuff. If someone dug a little, it would be real easy. Yeah. To find, but it wasn't so obvious. Right. And uh, anyway, I, I whispered that to Reza and a couple weeks later, he agreed to introduce me to the law school dean. And we and I, I remember putting trying to get like together the best suit that I had. I'm still like relatively fresh out of prison here, like still pretty early recovery. Yeah. I don't think I had like the best looking outfit, but I remember <laughs> these things, right? It was really right. important. It was so important for me. Yeah, absolutely. To look good to look sharp. And I did my best. And we got there and we met the dean. It's on the top floor or one of the top floors of the law school. And there's this beautiful view of the bay, Casco Bay over the ocean in Portland, Maine. And we sit down and start talking. I now I had not really ever been in any kind of office like this before. And that's so important. Like this is so for me now it's routine for me to be in like high ranking officials offices. Like I was just wasn't in those spaces, like to meet a dean of anything, let alone let alone a law school dean. And so here I was and he said something along the lines of, you know, Reza and Reza came too. He wanted to be there. He said, I think this is gonna be part of history. Can I come? Oh, I love it. And I said, Yeah, of course you can come. You you know. And so we're talking with the dean, and he said, Chris, Reza tells me you have a really interesting story, and you could bring uh, a unique perspective and some diversity to, the, to our law school. Could you tell me a little bit about that? And that's all that he knew going in, the dean. And so I said, yeah. I said, you know, I was, um, my mom was a single mom. I kind of went through a little bit of the story that we started with. I said I was homeless for a little while, and he's like nodding along to this, like, okay, okay. And then I told him I had issues with uh, alcohol and drug addiction, but I was in recovery. But as soon as I said that, he was like, okay, a little less enthusiastic. And then once I told him, which I knew I would have to disclose eventually on the law school application, when I told him I'd done a multiple-year federal prison sentence. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I guess that wasn't the diversity he anticipated that I would bring right. to the school. I think he thought I was going to say, like, you know, I was in the Peace Corps. Right, and right. I got, got malaria and was taken in by a local tribe. And, right. You know, helped them with their epidemic for a couple of years or something. I don't know. That's like a typical law school absolutely. story, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's the elite. It's the elite that go to law school. And so anyhow, you know, he, he was really that that concerned him a lot. And he, he started to suggest other career ideas in that meeting. He said, you know, couldn't, couldn't you work in some kind of, um, you know, maybe you could be a a drug treatment specialist or you could be a a social worker or a counselor or something. Isn't there, is there something else that would be more suitable uh, for, for you and for someone with your background? Because, I don't really think that the legal community is, you know, they may not embrace you. Yeah. Just put it that way. And I was really uh, crushed because this was something I had dreamt up before. I mean, it started actually with my grandfather, my, my mom's stepdad, who was an attorney reading his cases as a little kid in the basement of their um, house. 
But then I, I got, I was unable to pursue that for many years due to my sickness. And so I, anyway, this was a dream that was born as a little kid. It was brought back to life in a cell. And here I am being told, you know, he didn't categorically say no, but it was not very positive. It was really, really like, you know, that's, that's nice, but I don't really know if this is for you. And so what I did was, I think probably for the first time in my life, I stood up for myself in a assertive and respectful manner. And I said, I chose my words very carefully. I said, Dean, why didn't the judge give me a life sentence in prison? And he was surprised by my question. He said, I'm not sure. Maybe it was your criminal record or the, the conduct. And he said, I don't know. And so I said, then, Dean, why are you giving me a life sentence here today? Wow. Mike drop. And when I said that, and it was a little bit more of a conversation than just yeah. like that. But that's what I said. I yeah. talked about that and the, the idea of redemption and the legal system. And isn't the idea of the legal system here that you, you have a sentence and then once you've paid your debt, you're supposed to be whole and society is supposed to be whole as a result of the sentence, the fines, the probation, the fees, everything. When that's all done, um, is, shouldn't it be done? And I, and so when I said that about the life sentence to him, I could see, you know, when I, when I disclosed the federal conviction and prison sentence, it was like a wall was built between them. Immediately it went like, could, might as well have been on the other side of the earth from him. And it's how I felt. And uh, when we had that conversation about the life sentence and redemption and the purpose of the legal system, a couple bricks fell off the top of the wall. He wasn't like, we didn't like hug. And yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, let's get you in here. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a slight shift within him. And I could see it happen. I mean, I think he was thinking internally, like, holy crap, did he really just like... Yeah, drop some knowledge. On the whole purpose of our legal system right. in the country? Absolutely. And, and who am I to tell this young man that he's doomed, basically, with his uh, goals? And so months went on. I, I did apply, did really... And I'll tell you, you know, they say in, in recovery, resentments are awful. The number one offender. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'll tell you what, that resentment got me into law school. Oh, I believe it. Because I held on to that. I think resentments, if we let them consume us and destroy us rather than fuel us, then yeah, they're bad. But what happened was whatever fire within me, I went in. At first, I was incredibly discouraged when I left. I was really discouraged. But then I thought, you know what, I've been through more than this. And what I'm with that fire within me that I kind of learned from transforming while I was in prison, it was like, like out of control. It, it was burning. And I ended up, I, I had never gotten an A in, in class, in a class before. And I got my first A um, in a college Spanish class. It was really cool. It was this um, older, wonderful Colombian woman uh, who taught us this intensive. Uh, college Spanish class. And during our exam, she would bring us little candies, which were like little Hershey's and stuff during our exam. And of course, I had taught myself Spanish um, while I was in prison. I worked as a teacher and tutor to uh, people from the Dominican Republic, Colombia, Puerto Rico, and Vietnam. And so I learned a little Spanish. I didn't have the the grammar and everything yeah. down, but I had, a, I had a head start on a college Spanish class. So anyway, I got an A. I had never gotten an A before. And this was right after that meeting with the dean. And I thought, oh, my goodness, it's okay for me to excel. It's okay for me to do well. I can do well. I don't have to just survive. I can thrive. And after I got that A, I never got anything less ever again. So I had a 4.0 every semester for the rest of my college career. And then I went back to the law school, right? And uh, with my application and with a solid LSAT score, and we could get into a whole conversation about standardized tests and how that furthers inequality. Oh, but yeah. Oh, my why gosh. I was able to thankfully had the time to get take an LSAT course. Absolutely. And I did pretty well on it. 
um, you know, above the average for the law school. And they had along the admissions committee had quite the uh, discussion, investigation and debate, but they ultimately voted unanimously in my favor. I love it. And guess who was on that admissions committee? Rajon? No, Raza. The dean. The dean. Well, yes, of course, the, the dean. dean. Yeah. Yeah. And so he he came around. In yeah. other words. Yeah. And there may have been some friendly arm twisting and encouragement from colleagues and other folks, um, but he came around. And on my first day of law school, I remember my grandmother, who I told you took me in during high school and was just with me through all of the thick and thin. And she, she, I remember she waved me off just with tears streaming down her face for oh, my she, first day of law school. Oh, I can't even imagine. You know, she visited me in jails, prisons, hospitals, oh, mental oh, institutions. I can't even imagine how wonderful. That. And then just waving me off to, to my first day as a 1L. And I got to the law school, and the first person I saw was the dean. <laughs> and he, to his credit, went right up to me, put his hand out, gave me a firm handshake, smiled, and said, welcome. Oh, you're, I have you're chills. Part of this, you're part of this community now. You're, you're welcome here, and you belong here. Oh, I have chills. That's just absolutely amazing. And then how long... You worked your way to the White House. So tell us a little bit about that. I know, and, and you have a book coming out as well, right? Maybe someday. Maybe someday. I've okay. I've been working on this book for a long time. I don't know what, I don't know why I won't just do it, but something I'm working through. And so during my second year of law school, I was still um, largely private. Only my close friends knew about the details of my past and a couple law students, maybe a couple of professors that I chose to confide in, but I wasn't raising my hand in class. Yeah. Yeah. Saying anything about my own experiences. And part of that was, again, the shame part of it was protecting my own career. I was told to protect my own career by being private. And part of it, which I think is more a, a better reason, was I wanted to be recognized as a leader at the law school and as a good student based on my merit, not based on my story. And I think that that's, you know, while I love when people are hired who have been incarcerated for job, you know, I mean, hired for jobs like policy work and, and just, but I, the worst thing we can do is hire someone just because of course they've been incarcerated or they're in recovery. If it's not a match, and so I wanted to establish myself not based on my story, but based on my ability, um, just like any other person. And I did. I became president of the American Constitution Society at the law school. I was on the dean's list and all of that before I ever, quote unquote, came out. Right. Right. And one Smart. day I had the opportunity to go to City Hall and, and work on this task force for the mayor of Portland, Maine around addiction. It's addiction task force for the city of Portland. And all they knew, even then, all they knew was like I had some stuff that I'd overcome and I was interested in, in addiction recovery and I was a law student. That's it. And the guest of the day was a guy named Michael Botticelli from the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, who was um, the director of drug policy for President Obama. And he gets in there to our meeting and he says, yeah, I'm Michael Botticelli. I'm in person in long-term recovery from addiction. I've also been arrested, been to jail, and I'm a gay married man. And I thought, doesn't he, he doesn't know he's not at a meeting? You know, it's like, <laughs> like how can someone tell him? <laughs> yeah, what's he doing? Breaking his anonymity and yeah. talking about this stuff? Jesus. And I, th I thought I thought that was going to ruin our careers. Right. And I said, geez, he seems to be doing okay. It's the director of national drug control policy for the United States of America and openly in recovery, openly gay, married man in recovery, been arrested. He didn't really, he didn't do any time, but nonetheless, he's felt what handcuffs feel like at least. And uh, anyhow, that, that moment... Uh, that day completely changed my life, and it redirected me from wanting to practice law, like in the courtrooms and the trenches every day, to wanting to work on policy. 
because I thought I just immediately thought, you know, yes, we need people getting Joe out of jail on Tuesday. Absolutely. Um, But maybe that's not the role that I'm intended for, at least not right now. Maybe I can work on things that will impact 100,000 Joes in one signing of a signature. And so I, I actually wanted to talk to him, right? But I didn't want the mayor and the police chief and everybody. I didn't want to, like, raise my hand in this public forum. I wasn't ready to talk about all that yet. And so what I did was I actually, toward the end of the meeting, I excused myself and I went back. I was, like, reverting. And this is the thing. I could, We can use our old behaviors for positive. So I was thinking, like, how am I going to get to this guy? How am I going to find him? I thought, what if this guy owed me money? How would I find him? Oh, well, maybe I'd figure out what kind of car he drives and then just position myself (laughs) between where I knew he currently was and where his vehicle was. Therefore, you know, he has to cross by the path. Like if he owed me money, that's a way to do it. Sit on the you know hood of his car until he has to go somewhere. Right, right. And uh, so I leave City Hall. Of course, I didn't have any nefarious thoughts this time. This was more positive. And I see these, I see a black suburban with tinted windows and two guys with, you know, dark glasses and suits looking around. I thought, yeah, this is this guy's car. Of course, like this is Portland, Maine. We don't, I mean, anywhere, it's a good indication that it's a government official or somebody. And sure enough, so I'd like stood around and by the city hall, like looking at the statues and tulips, just kind of loitering. And sure enough, he came out. And he's and I said, Director Barcelli, hey, it's Chris. I'm like 20 feet away. I was just in the meeting or I said, do you have a moment? And he's like trying to register who I am. He's got Secret Service guys with him. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in the meeting, right? Yeah, sure. Come on up. And so I, you know, cautiously approached him and um, I told him, you know, I said, Director Barcelli, what you said in there changed my life. You being open about your recovery, I didn't I didn't know we could even do that. And I told him when I was, you know, when President Obama was elected as president, I was sitting in federal prison watching that night. And I and now I'm in recovery, I'm in law school, and I'd love to come to Washington. And that's all I said. I didn't know what I was asking for. And uh, that began the process, which took about a year for me to eventually get um, national security position clearance uh, to serve as a law student intern at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. That is amazing. That is amazing. And where did that take you today? I know that you're you're working on reentry policy now, and that you've you've you're no longer in Washington. What what does your life look like today? So I'm in the other Washington now, Washington State. I I went. And I finished. Finished law school, had a hell of a time getting admitted to the bar. Oh, I bet. Because of my record. And that's another thing where I, th- I think that could have been handled a lot more efficiently and, you know, with less pain for everybody involved, frankly, particularly me. Anyhow, that way we could spend an hour on that that discussion. But it was it was pretty terrible. In some ways it was worse. Then, you know, when I got arrested for the drugs and stuff like that, it was like, yeah, this sucks, but I, I did it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. this is the deal. Yeah. Whereas for the bar admission, it was just absolutely, they have a criminal prosecutor in Maine that just eviscerates your character if you have any, any question of whether you're fit. And you have to sit there, and I was cross-examined for, I think, six or seven hours oh altogether. Oh, gosh. At least, at least four hours. Maybe it was longer. And uh, so I eventually did get admitted to the main bar, but I didn't see any policy opportunities in Maine for me. I applied for some in Washington and New York, but a lot of these criminal justice reform organizations and, and recovery advocacy is pretty good at hiring directly impacted people. Criminal justice reform, not so much. It's almost, almost exclusively academics with just a purely academic background. So if you, you know, you're number one in your class from NYU and you you, you, like, you wrote an amazing paper on uh, bail, like you're in, right? But if you, if you graduated real, you know, with 
honors from a regular law school and you've been in prison for five years and you have that lived experience, like, sorry. Anyway, a friend of mine direct was the owner of treatment centers, um, Life of Purpose Treatment, which combines higher education with treatment. So I started in Texas directing an addiction. Straight out of law school, I went to being director of an addiction treatment center and a professor of criminal justice at the University of North Texas, teaching all future Texas law enforcement my thoughts on oh, man, I love you know, it. criminal justice. And they let me. You know, I, yeah. I, I told them, like, these are my views. They're like, go for it. We want these young people to get exposed to something different. So kudos to the University of North Texas for not, for not being like, yeah, this is what Yeah, we, yeah. Um, and so I went in and I questioned the drug war and I questioned our policies of trying to arrest our way out of a situation um, that's, you know, largely needs to be addressed with a demand reduction approach, um, like getting people prevention, treatment, recovery, rather than just trying to build bigger walls and build more prisons, which has not only been ineffective, utterly ineffective, it's been harmful. So anyway, I, I, I did that for a year, and then I got the opportunity to serve uh, as an appointee in Washington State as the executive director of the statewide reentry council. And so now I advise, we advise uh, the state senate and house, the legislature, and the governor's office on issues related to reentry after incarceration and go around the state and as well as the country um, to push for more investment in things that actually work to address addiction and to promote successful reentry into society after incarceration. And I have a, I have a home now. I have my own house, which um, is a big part of you know, having a home, having a partner. I have a puppy, a little German Shepherd puppy. Oh, and so cute. I spend my time with with my partner. You know, if I'm not working, I spend my time with my partner, with my puppy, or climbing mountains. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I've been doing lately. When I was early in recovery, it was really about going to a lot of meetings for me. And now I've found some sober people who, who climb mountains together. And that's what's really engaging me right right now to help me um, stay on a positive path. And I, I, I've always need something new and challenging. And I think that that's usually good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I completely relate to that. I need a new challenge. I need a new thing. I know that you raise money for recovery and with your mountain climbing, is there a website that people can support you in that endeavor? There is. So if you, if you, if someone Googles climbing for recovery, it should pop right up. My fundraiser for Mount Rainier is still active and having some trouble with my heels right now uh, from, from the 18 mile journey I did yesterday. But as long as those, my heels heal, then I'll be actually climbing uh, Mount Rainier this coming weekend. Uh, but the fundraiser is ongoing either way. And uh, Climbing for Recovery, Christopher Poulos, uh, the organization is called uh, Recovery Beyond. And what it does is it helps, it, it takes people who are brand new to recovery and provides the normal stuff or connects resources for the normal stuff like housing, treatment, Etc. basic needs, but it also introduces participants to the outdoors and the um, fellowship and camaraderie and team building and, and independence that can come from that. And after one year in the program, the um, clients, the participants actually do a Mount Rainier climb themselves. So the same thing we're doing kind of on the, as the fundraisers, the actual participants who are coming out of homelessness. And it, this is specifically for folks that don't have the resources to go to an expensive treatment center and all that. It's a different route in it, but it centers the mountains. I love that. That's so beautiful. You have such a wonderful story of not giving up. And I just, I mean, yes, things were, there were definitely places where things were on your side, but um, I think that your 
your desire to to not be stopped by those barriers is 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 really what makes your life such a success story and I'm so grateful to you for sharing that with us and I think I know that your story is helping people and going to continue to help people because we do you know it was funny when you said we don't have a justice system we have a legal system and I thought no we have a penal code right you know yeah yeah we have a penal code where a punishment, system. Uh, a punishment system and 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 it doesn't allow for people to be you know when we ca- talk about rehabilitation in the penitentiary i just it, it blows my mind that we we even say that like it's a joke and and it's so important and i i have seen so many lives changed by it so i'm so grateful that there's someone who's been through it who is in there talking to people about what the experience is really like I see that in a lot of professional places, even with insurance companies making decisions about how long people get treatment or what kind of treatment they get, et cetera. They have no true experience with substance use disorder in the sense of experience or family or personal experience. And it makes such a difference. So I'm really thank you for being part of that and and not letting that stop you and and for coming out and sharing your story today. You're welcome. Thank you. And I think the one thing I would add is that the number one ingredient to my success has um, perseverance has been part of it. But the most important thing was becoming willing to listen to other people and uh, becoming willing to ask for help, to ask people who had successfully completed things that I wanted to do, ask them how they did it and ask them if they would show me. So find people that have what you want, ask them for help and ask them to show you how they did it. And accept, be willing to accept it. And whether it's, you know, how to stop uh, drinking alcohol, using drugs or how to do something that you want to do. That's it. You know, it's not, I don't, I'm not any that, I mean, I guess I'm relatively bright, but it's been being willing to listen and, and then sticking to it. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. And we are looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you. Take care. Bye. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 